Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and I'm reading today from Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty. We were talking last time about prevenient grace, the things that God does to prepare you before he even calls you to salvation. He called you from the foundation of the world, but things that were going on before that moment when you were saved. We go to part two in the final part of this message. You would perhaps say, that all I have talked about as yet has been providence rather than grace. Very likely. But I think that providence and grace are very near akin. At any rate, if providence is the wheel, grace is the hand which turns and guides it. But I am now about to speak of grace preceding calling in another sense. It strikes me that it is impossible to say concerning the elect when the grace of God begins to deal with him. When is it? You can tell when the quickening grace comes, but not when the grace itself comes. For no, in one sense, grace was exercised upon the chosen before the day star knew its place or planets ran their round. And I should say, that there is what I cannot call by any other name than formative grace, exercised upon the vessels of mercy at their very birth. It seems to me no small mercy that some of us uh, were born of such parents as we were, and that we were born where we were. <clears throat> some of us began right and were surrounded by many advantages. We were cradled upon the lap of piety, dandled upon the knee of holiness. There are some children who are born with a constitution which cannot escape sin, and which at the same time seems as if it is inevitably led them to it. Who can deny that there are some whose passions seem naturally to be so violent that notwithstanding almost any and every restraint, they run headlong into sin? And often those failings may be distinctly traced to their parents. It is no small blessing when we can look back and thank God that if no blue blood of nobility flows in our veins, yet from our very childhood we have not heard the voice of blasphemy, nor strayed into the haunts of vice, but that in the very formation of our character, divine grace has ever been present with us. This formative grace, many of you, I have no doubt, can, can trace in the examples and influences which have followed you from the cradle through life. Why, what a blessing to have had such a, a Sunday school teacher as some of you had. Other children went to schools, but they had not such a teacher or such a class as yours. What a privilege to have had such a minister as some of you had. Uh, though perhaps he has fallen asleep now. You know, there were others who went to places where there was no earnestness, no life. But that good man who was blessed to you was full of anxiety for your soul. And at the very first, before you were converted, his preaching helped to form your character. Why, it strikes me that every word I heard and everything I saw while I was yet a child or a youth had a part in the formation of my afterlife. Oh, what a mercy it is and to be placed where a, a holy example and godly 
conversation tend to form the man in a godly mold. All this may be, you know, without grace. I'm not speaking now of the, the work of effectual calling, but of that prevenient grace, which is too much forgotten, though it so richly deserves to be remembered. Think, too, of the prayers which brought tears to our eyes, the teaching that would not let us sin so deeply as others, of the light which glowed in us, even in our childhood, and seems to have dispelled something of our natural darkness. Think of that earnest face that used to look so steadily on us when we did wrong, and of that mother's tear, which seems as if it would burn itself into our hearts when there had been something amiss that made that mother anxious. All this, though it did not convert us, yet it helped to make us what we now are, and unto God let us give the glory. Furthermore, while there was this formative grace, there seems to me to have gone with it very much of preventive grace. How many saints fall into sins which they have to regret even after conversion, while others are saved from leaving the path of morality to wander in the morass of lust and crime? Why, some of us were, by God's grace, placed in positions where we could not well have been guilty of any gross acts of immorality, even if we had tried. We were so hedged about by guardian care, so watched and tended on every side, that we should have been dashing our heads against a stone wall if we had run into any greater open sin. Oh, what a mercy to be prevented from sinning when God puts chains across the road, digs ditches, makes hedges, builds walls, and says to us, No, you shall not go in that way. I will not let you. You shall never have that to regret. You may desire it, but I will hedge up your way with thorns. Now, you may wish it, but it shall never be yours. Beloved, I have thanked God a thousand times in my life that before my conversion, when I had ill desires, I had no opportunities. And on the other hand, that when I had opportunities, I had no desires. For when desires and opportunities come together like the flint and steel, they make the spark that kindles the fire. But neither the one nor the other, though they may both be dangerous, can bring about any great amount of evil so long as they're kept apart. Let us then look back, and if this has been our experience, bless the preventing grace of God. Again, there's an, another form of grace I must mention, namely restraining grace. Here, you see, I'm, I'm making a distinction. There are many who did go into sin. They were not wholly prevented from it, but they could not go as far into it as they wanted to go. There's a young man here tonight. He will say, how should I know? How should I know? Well, uh, I do know. There's a young man here tonight who wants to commit a certain sin, but he cannot. Oh, how he wishes to go, but he cannot. He's placed in such a position of poverty that he cannot play the, the fine gentleman he would like. Now, there's another. He wants to, to be dancing at such and such a place, but thank God he's lame. There's another who, if he had his wish, would have lost his soul. But since his blindness has come upon him, there's 
some hope for him. Oh, how often God has thrown a man on a sick bed to make him well. He would have been such as he was, even unto death, if he had been well, but, but God has made him sick, and that sickness has restrained him from sin. It is a mercy for some men that they cannot do what they would, and though to will is present with them, yet even in sin, how to perform that which they would, they find not. Ah, my fine fellow, if you could have your own way, you would have been at the top of the mountain by now, so you think. But no, you would have been over the precipice long before this, if God had left you climb at all. And so he's kept you in the valley, because he has designs of love towards you, and because you shall not sin as others sin. Divine grace has its hand upon the bridle of your horse. You may spur your steed and use the lash against the man who holds you back, or perhaps it is a woman, and you may speak bitter words against that wife, that sister, or that mother, whom God has put there to hold you back. You cannot go on. You shall not go on. Another inch forward, and you'll be over the precipice and lost. And therefore God has put that hand there to throw your horse back on its haunches and make you pause and think and turn from the error of your ways. What a mercy it is that when God's people do go into sin to, to any extent, he speaks and says, Hitherto shalt thou go, but no further. Here shall thy proud sins be stayed. And so there is restraining grace. We shall get still further into the subject when we come to what Dr. John Owen calls the, the preparatory work of grace. Have you ever noticed that parable of the, about the different sorts of ground? and the sower of the seeds. A sower went forth to sow, and, and some of the seed fell on stony ground. You can understand that, because all men have stones in their hearts. Some fell on the thorns and thistles. You, you can comprehend that, because men are so given to worldly care. Another part of the seed fell on the beaten path, and you can understand that. Men are so occupied with worldliness. But how about the good ground? Good ground? Is there such a thing as good ground by nature? One of the evangelists says that it was honest and good ground. Now, is there such a difference between hearts and hearts? Are not all men depraved by nature? Yes, he who doubts human depravity had better begin to study himself. Question, if all hearts are bad, how are some hearts good? Reply, they are good comparatively. They are good in a certain sense. It is not meant in the parable that the good ground was so good that it ever would have produced a harvest without the sowing the seed, but that it had been prepared by providential influences upon it to receive the seed. And in that sense, it may be said to have been good ground. And now let me show you how God's grace does come to work on the human heart so as to make it good soil before the living seed is cast into it, so that before quickening grace really visits it, the heart may be called a, a good heart, 
because it is prepared to receive that grace. I think this takes place thus. First of all, before quickening grace comes, God often gives an attentive ear. It makes a man willing to listen to the word. Not only does he like to listen to it, but he wants to know the meaning of it. Here's a little excitement in his mind to know what the gospel tidings really are. He's not saved as yet, but it is always a, a hopeful sign when a man is willing to listen to the truth and is anxious to understand it. And this is one thing which prevenient grace does in making the soul good. In Ezekiel's vision, as you will recollect, before the breath came from the four winds, the bones began to stir, and they came together bone to his bone. And so, before the Spirit of God comes to a man in effectual calling, God's grace often comes to make a stir in the man's mind, so that he is no longer indifferent to the truth, but is anxious to understand what it means. The next mark of this gracious work is an ingenuousness of heart. Some persons will not hear you, or if they do, they're always picking holes and finding fault. They're not honest and good ground. There are others who say, well, I'll give the man a fair and honest hearing. I'll read the Bible. I'll read it, too, honestly. I'll really see whether it be the Word of God or not. I'll come to it without any prejudices, or if I have prejudices... I'll throw them aside. Now, all of this is a blessed work of preparatory grace, making the heart ready to receive effectual calling. Then, when this willingness and ingenuousness are attended with a tender conscience, as they are in some unconverted people, this is another great blessing. Some of you are not converted, but you would not do wrong. You are not saints, but you could not tell a lie for the world. I thank God that there are some of you so excellent in morals that if you were proposed to us for church membership, we could not raise any objection to you on that ground, at any rate. You're as honest as the day is long. As for the things of God, you're outwardly as attentive to them and as diligent in them as the most earnest and indefatigable Christians. Now, this is because your conscience is tender. When you do wrong, you cannot sleep at night. You don't feel at all easy in being without a Savior. I know some of you do not. You've not come to any decision. The grace of God has not really made you feel your thoroughly ruined state. Still, you are not quite easy. In fact, to go farther, your affections, though not weaned altogether from earth, yet begin to tremble a little, as though they would go heavenward. You want to be a Christian. When the communion table is spread, you dare not come downstairs, but I see you looking on from the gallery, and you wish you were with us. You know you have not believed in Jesus Christ, and the world keeps you back from doing so. But still there's a kind of twitching in your conscience. You do not know what it is. But there's a, a something got into you that makes you say at times, Oh God, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Yes, and, and you even go farther than this, and you ask to live the righteous man's life too. 
Now remember, this will not save you. You must be born again. But for all this, the church of God should feel deeply grateful, for they have seen in themselves that this is often God's preparatory work, clearing away the rubbish and the rubble, digging out the foundations, that Jesus Christ might be laid therein, the cornerstone of future hope and of future happiness. Another work of grace is the creation of dissatisfaction with their present state. How many men we have known who were consciously without God and without hope in the world. The apples of Sodom had turned to ashes and bitterness in their mouths, though at one time all was fair and sweet to their taste. The mirage of life with them has been dispelled, and instead of the green fields and waving trees and rippling waters, which their fevered imagination had conjured up in the desert, they can see now naught but the arid sand and wasteness of desolation, which appall their fainting spirits and promise nothing. No, not even a grave to cover their whited bones, which shall remain a bleached memorial that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Multitudes have been brought to see the deluge of sin, which has covered even the high places of the earth, and they find no rest for the sole of their foot. But as yet they know not of an ark, nor of a loving hand prepared to pull them in, as did Noah the dove in olden time. Look at the life of Augustine, how wearily he wanders hither and thither with a, a death thirst in his soul that no fount of philosophy or scholastic argument or heretical teaching could ever assuage. He was aware of his unhappy estate and turned his eye around the circle of the universe looking for peace, not fully conscious of what he wanted, though feeling an aching void the world could never fill. He had not found the center, fixed and steadfast, around which all else revolved in ceaseless change. Now, all this appetite, this hunger and thirst, I look upon as not of the devil, nor of the human heart alone. It was of God. He strips us of all our earthly joy and peace, that, that shivering in the cold blast we might flee when drawn by his Spirit to the man who is as a hiding place from the storm, a covert from the tempest, in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Of course, I, I have not gone fully into this doctrine of prevenient grace, but I trust I've said just enough to waken the gratitude of all the saints who have experienced it and to make them sing with greater emotion than they have ever done before the song, quote, Determined to save, he watched o'er my path when Satan's blind slave I sported with death. And now we come to the last point, which is Paul's actual calling by divine grace. All preparatory work of which we have spoken was not the source or origin of the vital godliness which afterwards distinguished that renowned servant of God, Paul. That came to him on a sudden. And beloved, there may be some here tonight who cannot discern anything in themselves of God's work of grace at all. I do not wonder at this. I do not suppose that the apostle could discern it himself or even thought of 
of looking for it. He was as careless of Christ as is the butterfly of the honey in the flowers. He lived with no thought of honoring Jesus, no desire to magnify him, but with the very reverse passion, glowing like a hot coal within his soul. And yet, in a moment, he was turned from an enemy into a friend. Oh, what a mercy it would be if, if some here tonight were turned from enemies into friends in a moment. And we're not without hope, but that this will be the case. Now, you have hated Christ, my friend. You've hated him boldly and decidedly. You've not been a sneaking sort of adversary, but have opposed him frankly and openly. Now, why did you do it? I'm sorry for your sin, but I like your honesty. What is there in the person of Christ for you to hate? Men hated him while he was on earth, yet he died for them. Can you hate him for that? He came into this world to gain no honor for himself. He had honor enough in heaven, but he gave it up for the sake of men. When he died, he had not amassed a fortune, not gathered about him a troop of soldiers, nor had he conquered provinces. He died naked on a cross. Nothing brought him here but disinterested affection. When he came, he spent his life in deeds of holiness and good. For which of those things can you hate him? The amazing loving kindness of Christ Jesus towards sinners should in itself disarm their animosity and turn their hatred of him to love. Alas, I know that this thought of itself will not do it, but the Spirit of God can. If the Spirit of God once comes in contact with your souls and shows you that Christ died for you, your enmity towards Christ will be all over then. Dr. Gifford once went to see a woman in prison. She'd been a very gross offender. She was such a hardened reprobate that the doctor began by discoursing with her about the judgments of God and the punishments of hell. But she only laughed him to scorn and called him some bad names. The doctor burst into tears and said, Ah, yet, poor soul, there's mercy for you, even for such as you are, though you have laughed in the face of him who would do you good. Christ is able to forgive you, bad though you are, and I hope that he will yet take you to dwell with him at his right hand. In a moment, the woman stopped her laughing, sat down quietly, and she burst into tears and said, Don't talk to me that way. I've always been told that I should be damned, and I made up my mind to be. I knew there was no chance, and so I've, I've gone on from one sin to another. But, oh, if, if there's a hope of mercy for me, uh, that's another thing. If there's a possibility of my being forgiven, th that is another thing. The doctor at once opened his Bible and began to read to her these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, cleanses us from all sin. The greatest brokenness of heart followed. In subsequent visits, the doctor was gratified to find that she was brought to Christ. Though she had to undergo a sentence of transportation for many years at the time, yet in after days the godly man saw her walking honestly and uprightly 
as a believer in Jesus Christ. Sinner, I, I wish that thought would bring thee to Christ. Oh, that thou wouldst know that he has chosen thee, that he hath separated thee for himself to be his, his even from thy mother's womb. Ah, you have played the harlot, but, but he'll bring you back. You've sinned very greatly, but you shall one day be clothed in a white robe and wear the everlasting crown. Oh, blush and, and be confounded that you should ever have sinned as you have done. You've been a thief, a drunkard. You've brought your mother's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. But her prayers are going up even now to heaven, and you shall be brought in yet. Oh, stubborn sinner, my master means to have thee. Run as thou wilt, thou wandering sheep. The shepherd is after thee. Yield thee, yield thee. Yield thee now, O prodigal. Thy father's heart is open. Arise, go thou to thy father. Thou art ashamed to go, art thou? Oh, let that shame make thee go the faster. Let it not keep thee back. Jesus bled, Jesus wept. Jesus lives in heaven. Oh, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, let him buy wine and milk without money and without price. And whatsoever will, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. There is no sinner too black to be forgiven. There are no iniquities that can damn you if you believe in Jesus. All manner of sin and iniquity shall be forgiven unto him who puts his trust in the shadow of Jehovah Jesus. Look to him. He dies, he lives. Look, he rises, he pleads above. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I trust that the, the whole of your past mysterious life, my dear fellow sinner, will be explained to you tonight by your believing in Jesus. That will be the golden key which will open the secret. And you'll say, now I see it. I could not tell what that mysterious hand was that kept me back from doing a certain thing. I could not understand why I was led into such a path, but now I know that it was to take me to the feet of the blessed Savior, where I might be happy forever. As you look back and think of all the dealings of divine grace and providence, with you throughout your life, you will sing, Ah, who am I that God hath saved me from the doom I did desire and cross the lot myself did crave to set me higher. I must give one word of warning to those who are afflicting themselves with a notion that in order to true, real conversion, they must have a long course of agonizing soul conflict. You must mark that I am not teaching this. The new birth was instantaneous at once. Saul of Tarsus calls him Lord, and it's only three days that darkness rests upon him. This is the longest case recorded in the Bible. And how short a time in darkness and anguish that is compared with the experience of some whom you are regarding as models on which God must act in your case. Remember that God is not the God of uniformity, though he is of union and peace. He may lead you at once into joy and peace, as Nathaniel, who said, as soon as he saw Christ, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. God may, 
and doubtless has been blessing you through his grace from your birth, but he needs not to plunge you many days in the cold, dark waters of conviction to wash away your sin. The blood of Christ at once can cleanse from all sin if you confide your soul to him. Believe, therefore, and you are at once justified and at peace with God. May the Lord bless you all, for Jesus' sake. It's taken from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, 1865, volume 11, pages 589 to 600. And you can have that sermon and many, many more by uh, ordering the Puritan hard drive from the Stillwaters Revival Books, puritandownloads.com. It's just puritandownloads.com, all one big word. Thank you so much for being here today. It's always good to know that I'm speaking to people who care about their souls and the souls of others. Do come back. We'll talk more. We've got so many more things to share. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye.